The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hari Vishwanada. I teach in the English department here at SMC, and uh, I help all curate uh, this uh, literary series uh, every semester. Our guest will appreciate how much of a collaborative, cooperative community effort this is. Uh, there are lots of uh, different people who have to come together and work behind the scenes so that I can be here at this time in front of you and all of you are in this room with our guest. So I want to thank the event staff to, who help us uh, in recording these uh, events and making them available as podcasts to other people. Um, I want to thank the uh, Academic and Community Relations Office uh, with Kirsten Elliott and her colleagues, Rachel Dembski and Madeline Landau, who really take care of the logistics so that we are all on the same page uh, at the same time. I also want to thank the SMC Associates who uh, have generously supported this uh, series uh, every semester for the last 15 years. But all that is made possible only because of you, the college community, and members of the community at large. For the last 15 or so years, you have come to these events every semester, and that's why it gives me the confidence to go to the SMC Associates, to go to these interesting people like Michael Datcher, Steph Cha, Jeff Dyer last semester, and tell them, look, uh, it's not just I who am interested in listening to your work. Uh, there are lots of people on our campus. And so they, without hesitation, uh, come to share their experiences, their talents, their creativity with us. So I want to thank you uh, uh, for coming and continuing to support this. And, of course, there are more events this semester in the series. A lot of fascinating things happened at the Huntington, uh, the Huntington Library and Art Gallery in Pasadena, in San Marino, not far from us. And um, last year, one of the more pleasant experiences was that I found a, I was on a lunch break during my research, and uh, there was a sign saying that uh, there is somebody called Michael Datcher who is reading from his recently published novel, Americus. And so I had not read anything by Michael Datcher, and I wanted to know something more because the uh, little blurb said it was based in East St. Louis at the turn of the 19th century, and I was immediately interested. So I attended the reading by Michael Datcher, and at the end of the reading, uh, I approached him and said, he must come and visit us and share his experiences and story with us and he has graciously agreed. So I have to thank uh, the Huntington Library as well uh, in my list of thanks uh, for this day, uh, uh, for this day's event. Michael Datcher is the author of the critically acclaimed Raising Fences, a New York Times bestseller and Today Show Book of the Month pick, and the historical novel Americus. He's also co-editor of Tough Love, The Life and Death of Tupac Shakur, Datcher's play, Silence, was commissioned by and premiered at the Getty Museum. He's also co-host of the weekly public affairs news magazine, 
beautiful struggle on everybody's favorite radio station, KPFK, in Los Angeles. His writing is widely anthologized, including appearances in What Makes a Man, published by Penguin, Body and Soul, published by Crown. He has curated and or represented his work at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, Museum of Contemporary Art, the Hammer Museum, and interestingly, he's also the executive director of the World Stage that many of you probably are aware of, a literary and jazz education and performance nonprofit in Los Angeles's Crenshaw District. He teaches currently at, in the English department at Los Angeles Marymount University, I'm sorry, Loyola Marymount University. If you are not familiar with Datcher's work, I thought I would give you a taste of it with two excerpts. One is from an interview he gave to the Los Angeles Times back in 2001. I call myself an activist, says Datcher. I'm trying to activate change when I go out into the world. But I tell the brothers the best kind of activism you can do now is meet someone and fall in love and start a family. Now that's grassroots. Find your woman and be good to her. That's the most grassroots activism you can do. And the second is an excerpt from his first book, Raising Fences. When we finished, we broke to the alley. Someone had left a queen-sized mattress outside of a large trash dumpster. We pulled it over next to the garage. The mattress became a landing pad for our acrobatic leaps off the garage floor roof. Many of the neighborhood kids soon joined in. Each time Ricky jumped off, he would clutch the sides of his blue beanie with both hands. He was more concerned about his hat disengaging mid-flight than flying. He wasn't really having fun. When he landed again, I stepped to him and spoke from my heart. Cuz, we are your partners. Ain't nobody tripping off your head. Take that beanie off and let's try some wild jumps. Ricky hesitated, then reached up and pulled the blue covering from his scalp. The bald yellow dome was a full three shades lighter than his face, a shade lighter than his hairless, grow, hairless brow. His eyes darted to check the other boys' reactions. They were smart enough to pretend that absolutely nothing was out of the ordinary. Ricky and I climbed, racing up to the garage top, and backflipped down. Up again, front flip down, up again, swan dive down. He was smiling and laughing, pure energy. We flew the skies until sunset. It was the happiest I had ever seen him. Ricky was free. Michael Datcher. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you all here. This is book, America's. Am I too loud? Am I? Is this okay? I'll be good. I got a thumbs up from the back row. Nice. Thumbs up means that's good. This book is a, a family story about what happens in families when there's a problem that cannot be solved in the family. Uh, in this family, the problem is that the, in this family of identical twin sons, the youngest son uh, gets vitiligo. Vitiligo is the skin condition that uh, black and brown people primarily get. 
it makes folks who have melanin lose their melanin in splotches on their faces or different parts of their bodies. It's, of, it's oftentimes called the Michael Jackson disease in uh, current popular uh, vernacular. You have seen folks who have this very disturbing uh, condition. They're, they can be a dark-skinned black person and their face will be uh, splotched up. Have you guys seen this on people before? Okay. You have to imagine what that is like how that would impact your life. If you, if you may recall high school acne, if you had a really bad acne outbreak, for example, on those bad days, you would probably be uh, disinclined to even go to school because your face was all pocked up and full of pus. Uh, but imagine if it wasn't just acne, it was your face changing colors. When this happens to the boy, his name is Set. To Set, he's only 10 years old, and he goes from being this very charismatic uh, young boy uh, to eventually being a freak, at least in uh, his neighborhood and at his school, which leads to a series of really problematic problems in his life. Uh, the book is also a family story, um, really trying to look at African-American life in America. Um, and it begins in the opening page uh, with the, the, the main protagonist, the two brothers, who are, who are identical twins, Set and Asar. Set is the youngest brother by seven minutes. His oldest brother, Asar, uh, is the big brother in the family. And this family is a tradition-bound family, as many families are. And the oldest or firstborn child in this family, uh, to him, accrues certain types of privileges. Who's, a, who's the oldest in the crowd? Any oldest? Any firstborns? Who is the baby? Any, like, babies? Babies and mamas? Or any babies? Okay. Well, you know, then, if that's you, you know probably that in certain families, the firstborn uh, person gets certain types of benefits, but also, uh, also certain types of detriments as well. And that whole aspect plays a role in this opening section. Again, as I'm reading, uh, I want this to be kind of an interactive uh, process. So if I say anything that makes any sense to you, it's okay to let me know. If, let's practice real quick right, right now. So I'm going to count to three, and uh, you just say, that's right. Okay, just go with this. Go with this. One, two, three. That's pretty good. All right. Let's start. Thanks for listening. Saturday, June 10th, 1893, East St. Louis. Set knew he could never disrespect his father, but his twin brother was fair game. Being born seven minutes behind, Asar had taught Set the bad math of birth order, taught him that it was wrong. He knew his life could have been different had his, had his mother's egg not been divided by two, had he kicked and wiggled enough to slide his head out first, had Asar died in the womb. Set wished his brother no harm, usually, but sometimes slippery thoughts grew inside of him when he looked at the boy who had the same part running down the center of his scalp, the boy who always got to play the best part as the firstborn son. Set tried to wrestle down an ugly thought as he stared at a saw standing next to their father, but the image in his mind was too slimy to be stopped too strong, dead wrong. Thank you. Thanks for clapping. Nice. Uh, you can snap or clap or just straight bust a move if you feel so inclined. Also cool. In this family as well, uh, this is in 1893 when the book begins, and the father is concerned about his two black boys, much like today. Uh, many parents are concerned who have black male children because of the ways in which the state police apparatus engages all black folk, but black, boy, uh, black boys in particular for various reasons, which we'll get into in a second. And so at a very early age, he begins to try to train 
or prepare his sons to deal with being black or carrying black bodies in America. And one of his techniques, for example, is to aggressively give them uh, techniques and training ideas to help them survive uh, in America. And so one of his ideas is to, at the age of five, he stops giving the boys their birthday presents. Instead, he begins to bury them in the backyard. And he gives the boys, oh, he gives the boys a, um, a, a simplistic map. And he says to them, all right, happy birthday, sons. Here's your map. You have to now go to the backyard and find your own presents. If you cannot find them in one hour, you forfeit them to me. And that was the father's way of teaching the boys that a man uh, works for everything he gets, including presents. So that plays a role in this next section. At 7 a.m. sharp, Keb, the father, handed the map scroll to Asar, the, the oldest son. Though Set knew well the familial protocol, he shut his eyes to protest the handoff from father to firstborn. Asar ignored Set's blind fit. Instead, he dropped to his knees as if he weren't wearing his stern brother's brown suit pants with the matching vest and jacket. Using both palms, Asar unrolled the scroll across the manicured bluegrass lawn. The map was long as he was tall. His father's meticulous script was the only thing he recognized. Asar knew this was no map of the circular backyard, no round fountain in the center, no specialty shed along the curving back wall of red rose bushes, and most obvious, no 33 round tombstones forming a circle. His eyes wide as a Morgan dollar, Asar looked up into his father's smiling hazel irises. His mother's frown went unnoticed as she gazed out at them from the kitchen window. Asar wanted to throw a roundhouse to set's calf. Instead, he reached, up, he reached out and pinched hard his brother's thigh. Stop playing blind and get down here. Set refused to flinch or open his eyes, but he did buckle down to his own brown-suited knees next to his big brother. Asar jabbed his index finger onto a perfectly drawn X. Our presents are buried on Bloody Island. Thank you. So oftentimes, uh, thanks for the snaps in the background. Uh, that was very cool. I like the. Oftentimes, uh, 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 this book also deals with black parenting skills, skills and approaches. As you may know, if you're a football fan, the great tailback for the Vikings, uh, Adrian Peterson, called a case for spanking his child with a switch. Now, I wasn't there. It could have been brutal. But let me, in terms of full disclosure, I've been spanked with a switch a gazillion times. Uh, also, let me recount some of this stuff. Belts, from time to time, an orange Hot Wheel racetrack. Keep it real, real quick. Uh, and not that, not that we need to spank our kids with Hot Wheel tracks. Uh, I don't uh, ascribe to that. Uh, at the same time, uh, the, book seek, the, the book seeks to, to call into question some of these techniques of raising our children. It's believed, that, it's believed by some people that uh, that type of aggressive parenting is passed down really from the slave master of beating our children. And although it is a way to help control the children in our households, but it's also a way to let them know that we solve problems via violence. And when this case came to bear, if you're a football fan, you know it well, uh, black people generally were upset that Mr. Peterson caught such hell uh, for, for switching, spanking his child with the switch. I'm, I'm undecided about my belief in that type of punishment, but I wanted to, in this book, raise it 
because I know many uh, of us who, who are parents or, or who's, who are grandparents have passed down our own uh, black child-rearing practices to our own kids, at times to our kids' own peril. So all, all that plays a role uh, in this next section because some of those uh, teachings are hard to shake, as I'm sure you know if you're, you are of a certain age. Caleb Americus had been burying his son's birthday presents since they were five years old. It allowed him to combine his love for map-making and man-making. He inherited his own father's skill with maps, but was determined to shake the patriarch's crude child-rearing approach and shake off its effects, a slow process. Kemp still had the self-conscious look of a critical father's only child. Just beneath seamless skin was a puzzled face with pieces jammed to fit. Kemp had learned from experience that tough love without hugs, playful rides on knees, and tender forehead kisses wasn't tough love. It was just tough. That's why it made Kemp feel like such a good daddy last week when the twins' big rusty butts tumbled into the library and asked to test his bucking bronco knees, a rambling ride that he enjoyed more than his boys. Kev had long decided that the twins' 10th birthdays would officially start their rites of passage into manhood. His own father had always told him that 10 was a number of perfection. When Kev's wife, Matilda, went into labor on Sunday, June 10, 1883, he knew there was something, there was going to be something special about his child. What Kemp didn't know was that the specialness would come in twos. From the day baby faced, Dr. Nathaniel Mandrake handed the twins from exhausted wife to elated father, Kemp Americus began plotting how to build his little boys into perfect men. Thank you. This book is set uh, from 1883 until 1927, approximately. I wanted to uh, document, talk about, interrogate strong women who were charismatic and dynamic, who had to deal with contexts that were oftentimes uh, delimiting, that were constricting for them. I'm intrigued by women in, in, a, in a world that's oftentimes anti-woman or, or misogynistic, how folks can be dynamic and powerful and gendered as women and still find a way to get things done, and still have agencies. This book really deals with strong black women and uh, the price that is paid when women are too strong, too dynamic, got it going on a little bit too much. And so this book really deals with that uh, to a large degree. Uh, so again, as I said before in the, in the earlier passage, typically the father was burying his uh, presence of the, of the boys in the backyard, but at age 10 he decides to have them go off the property to a very dangerous red light district. It's a real place. It, it, it exists today still. It's called Bloody Island in East St. Louis. And this, that is the context of the next passage. From the kitchen window, Natilda, the mother, used both hands to part the curtain of wavy black hair draping her buttermilk face. A face that embodied the agitated curiosity of the smart girl, searching for interesting questions while others were content with convenient answers. Natilda watched the twins skip towards the house. When she met them at the kitchen door, Natilda sucked the frown into her reckless eyeballs. Mama, 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 
they said, forcing a smile onto her face. I know, Mama knows. Now run along like your father told you and get your compasses. Indeed, Natilda did know. Keb usually shared his plans with his wife in infinite detail, sometimes to get her opinion, rarely to get her approval, an approach that kept a fire under most discussions about rearing their sons. Natilda stormed out the kitchen's back door and stumped towards the America's fountain. The Sienna tea gown hugging her waist flared out over her quick moving ankles. Kemp was still crouched over the map awaiting the twins' return. Now, not every husband could have heard their wife's small bare feet high stepping across a thick carpet of blue grass, but Kemp did. He expected it. Matilda Americus was the kind of woman who took things to the end of the line. The boys had yet to leave the property, so the end of the line had yet to be reached. Kevin knew his wife would have to try one last time to change his mind. Her lips pursed like a short-tempered nun about to break a vow of silence. Matilda stood over her husband at his goddamn map. Kev's eyes shifted from the map to the Sienna tea gown with embroidered monarch butterflies on the flowing fringe. Peeking beneath the small fringe was a small-boned, high-arched foot that could have belonged to a 12-year-old cakewalk champion. Keb knew each individual toe so intimately. Over a decade of placing them phalange by phalange into his mouth, his tongue knew the knuckle hump of his wife's petite big toe. His lips could calculate the angle of her curving pinky toe. He was a footman, not me per se, I'm just saying generally. The character was a footman. Don't make that association, I'm just saying. Natilda squatted face to face with Kev's half-lidded hazel eyes and lump of cold nose. East St. Louis on the grass between them, she leaned in, her reckless eyeballs redirected to opposite corners like gentlemen prize fighters. Kev, you know this town better than I do. Matilda's hard whisper sent spittle onto the short lapels of, of, of Kev's black silk sack suit. Bloody island? She continued. You know what goes on there. You shouldn't be out here having this talk with yourself. Kev leaned back, examined Matilda's decoded Dakota Indian cheekbones, the buttermilk that covered them, the lips spitting on him, two fleshy wedges of pink grapefruit, and those carnival freak eyes, the opposite of crossed eyes. If it were not for some dramatic flaw in such an alluring high yellow face, Kemp still wondered at times whether she would have agreed to marry a man with onyx skin. Light is right, usually trumped colored money. Say something, she said. Not, I've already said what I plan to do. And, hey, these are my sons, too. And ten is too young to be putting them in danger. You can't let them go across all those rail tracks way out to Bloody Island. Listen, this will help them learn. Why don't you just trail behind them? Don't send my babies out there to have their little heads crushed under a train. Stop being ridiculous. Not, they could die out there. Who died, Set said. From the kitchen window, kitchen door, his big boned athletic body came bounding across the bluegrass. He yelled over his shoulder, Sar, we have a new body coming in. Daddy, don't start until we come back, okay? 
Natilda stood, avoided the twins' faces, and marched back towards the kitchen. At the door, she spun around, giving flight to the monarch butterflies on the dresser's fringe. Her reckless eyeballs found her husband. His eyes were cast down upon East St. Louis, index finger imagining a course for his sons. As a saw is set nestled beside him on their knees, Keb avoided almond eyes. He didn't want them to see the emotion welling in his own pair. Keb had waited a decade to send the boys on this journey. He hoped they would return with the gift that would initiate them into young manhood, even if they didn't understand the gift or what the gift bestowed. Thank you. So people oftentimes, uh, in the context of the whole Black Lives Matter movement, in the context of uh, documented evidence of the long, of the long and well-known fact that, that the police and other folk who are not black oftentimes feel threatened by black people, black men in particular, and aggressively engage us in various types of contexts. Uh, folks oftentimes wonder, why do you think people are so aggressive when it comes to, in this case, unarmed black men walking down the street, unarmed black men driving their car, at times we know unarmed black women as well, of course. Uh, but generally, uh, unarmed black boys with Skittles and Snapple in their hand, you know. Uh, and so part of it, in terms of my research and my own personal experience, it's predicated on, um, in my experience, uh, two main things. One is just a lack of knowledge, uh, an embrace of the idea that black men are more violent or, or violent, and also kind of fear, and what I, what I would call essentially kind of a, a sexual insecurity uh, by folks, by men who are not black. It seems to me that much of, of at least white, white male on black male racism is predicated on two main things. Because men are socialized to be men, at least in our country, in two main ways. One is to basically, uh, to, to physically be able to, to dominate someone, uh, whether it's through sports or violence or at times sexuality, or by being able to be in control. And at times because black men are deemed as sexually uh, powerful, that can be uh, a targeting, uh, a reason to target them. If, if a person is not black and male, at times, at least in my own personal experience, other non-black males, white males, particularly in my experience, have I, I like to compare their manhood to black men. So that's been my real-life experience. And so uh, this passage kind of talks about how black confidence uh, can trigger violence in, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. Camp stood between his two sons on the 40-by-30-foot front porch. Locomotives in sight, black plumes rose and followed convulses like combustible kites. Trains rambled and whistled across the flat landscape, rumbling the wood boards beneath six black Oxford brogues. Cab had a languid arm draped over each twin's jacket shoulder. A wooden sign hung above their heads from the eaves, America's and Son Funeral Home. The three could have been posing for an advertising photograph for their family business. Kemp loved that the boys inherited his complexion and not their mother's buttermilk tone. During last summer's hot heat wave, as they all lay shirtless on their backs in the backyard, he had explained to them, sons, the more sunshine grows on your body, the more God trusts you with the power that makes food grow out the ground. Asar had raised his naked onyx arms to the sky and smiled. Here on this expansive porch, they were a picture of relaxed confidence, gravitas. 
the kind of people you'd entrust your dearly, depart, your dearly departed with. It was not just their natty attire that could sell a thousand caskets. It was the expression on their faces, especially the twins' faces, an expression they had learned from close study of the man standing between them. Their inherited almond-shaped hazel eyes were half-lidded and serious as death. Their mother's grapefruit-wedged lips suggesting a smirk. Chins up! Lump of nose, lump of cold noses and high foreheads and high foreheads cocked at an angle that could get a Negro man or a 10-year-old boy, Negro boy, lynched on the other side of the Mississippi River. An explosive picture when fused to dark skin because it proclaimed, I can do anything. Thank you. And this last passage, and thanks again for listening, I appreciate it, um, is uh, about the phenomena that I saw coming up quite a, a great deal in my neighborhood when I would have friends who were just regular kids in the neighborhood who got, became teenagers and began to engage in really kind of antisocial, at times, psychopathic behavior. So my neighborhood, the cats were, we turned 13, 14, cats were jumped into, in our neighborhood, it was the Insane Crips, was our set in Long Beach. The Insane Crips set was our dominant Crips set in the neighborhood. And as Crips, they would basically inflict violence upon other black people in the neighborhood, and at times folks were Latino. And at times, these future Crips would, even pre-Crip, would engage in behavior that was really just diabolical. You know, there was a kid who would stick, you know what M80s are? It's kind of a, kind of a firecracker. Would stick M80s in, in a cat's anus just to blow it up. That was just like pretty typical. And, and I saw that the, there was something about being raised in a violent culture. America was, I'm sure you know, was founded on violence. We, we, we had a violent revolution uh, to become America. We uh, violently enslaved people, raped. I'm talking about, you should certainly know the history of slavery and not just by watching Roots. It'll really... It'll trouble you to the core. But, but, but it's important to know uh, because you get a sense of what has made America great. And this is a great country. I'm a, I think America is a great country. However, uh, to get great, uh, it did a lot of despicable, violent, horrific, hard to even imagine things. And because black people are, are at the lower stratum of society, our uh, embrace of violence at times... Um, Expressing itself in ways that are also very, very troubling. So all that plays a role. Because I began to see young boys really become monsters in my neighborhood. And the issue is, what do you do when it's your kid, when it's your friend, when it's your boy who becomes the neighborhood monster? Now, I'm sure in a room this large, some of you know what I'm talking about via personal direct experience. You know someone or someone's in your family, or a child molester in your family, someone who touches the kids inappropriately which is also, of course, monstrous. It isn't just physical violence. It's also sexual violence as well. Do you call the police when Uncle Joe gets busted touching your daughter? Do you beat him up? I don't know. What do you do? Is that going to help if he's in jail? I don't know. All right? but, but something's got to get done. And this passage talks about that. There's a, a, a classic and really important African, West African proverb that says, essentially, this is a poor paraphrase, but basically says, there is no bad bush in which to throw a bad child, which is to say that 
if your child is bad or is problematic, there's no place you just throw, you, you don't throw away your child. You have to deal with them. You've got to find a way. You know, you don't, there's no bad place, bad bush to throw a bad child. You've got to deal with your kids. And so when it's your kid or your brother or your sibling or your uncle who does bad things, what do you do, right? So this book set because of his vitiligo eventually, but also even as a young boy, he has that monster thing inside of him. It's just waiting to explode. And this passage kind of hints at, uh, hints at that when he's a small boy. So thanks again and for listening to this last passage. <clears throat> it was still early in the stockyards. Workers entering through the main gate walked straight towards the huge building with armor and company across the top. The outdoor sheep pens were mostly unmanned. I guess it doesn't take too many men to watch over sheep since they've got their own big old eyes, Seth said. Asar was quiet, tense. Maybe we should pet one, Seth said, smiling. Asar's body jerked towards his brother. No, Seth. You are more scaredy than these stinky, inky sheep, and they're about to get killed, Seth said, drawing his forefinger across his throat. No one's even watching us. If you climb that fence, I swear to God, I will sock you right in the behind. I'm not going to climb it, Mr. Scare D-Cat. I'm just going to stick my hand through and pet one. Before Asar could come up with a good reply, Set stuck his whole left arm into the pen and began doing his sheep call. She-e-e-e-p. She-e-e-e-p. Asar looked quickly left, then right, then behind himself. To his relief, a young sheep about five feet from the fence stayed there. These sheep don't speak English, stupid. And you don't know which of these gibberish languages they understand, Asar said. Said ignored his brother. He stuck his other arm through, wiggled his fingers, and added his best imitation of a Polish accent. She-e-e-e-p, ski? She-e-e-e-p, ski? The lamb looked right at Set and bleated, bleated again, then, then started to cautiously move towards him. Set poured on the Polish, ski. A horrified Asar began looking around to see if anyone was watching. Cut it out, Set. She e e e p ski. The baby Polish sheep again bleated and came within petting distance. Set lunged forward, grabbed the startled lamb by the throat with both hands and squeezed as hard as he could. The sheep bucked, but Set snatched him closer until the sheep's wild eyes were inches from his own. In one quick motion, Set released his left hand just long enough to forcefully jab his left forefinger through the soft flesh adjacent to the lambs, I yanked the bulging oval right out of its socket. The bleating hysterical sheep broke free of Set's grip and wildly zigzagged like a puffy bronco, big eyeball flopping from his optical cord, a crazed stare on a string. Set's eyes grew large too. She e e e p. The bleating bronco started a bleating contest among the other sheep. This collective animal wail reverberated inside Asar's skull as he stared at Set, who was staring at the traumatized you. Asar watched Set's excitement at creating chaos and pain again. In these moments, Asar felt a kind of fear. He wasn't afraid of his brother. Asar was afraid that he 
and his brother were only twins on the outside. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I appreciate that. Uh, if there are any questions, I will entertain them now, or we can just have lunch and or play dominoes. Whatever y'all want to do is cool. Whatever y'all want to do is cool. We can just hang out. Did the boys ever find their presence? They did. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, what's your name? Okay. That's right, brother. Good. Yes, sir. The orange ones. That's right. That's a really important question because, as the book alludes to, it, it talks about violence in America or, or the intersection of race and violence. When you're raised in a violent context, it's going to affect you. There's no choice about it. When you, what you see, you pretty much become. And the book makes argues, essentially, that because we're raised in such a violent context in America, but also raised in this context at the lower stratum where, where things are intensified, that we begin to pass down abusive behavior. And you're right. Listen, cats who are older than me, my older brother, my uncles, those cats were getting beat with. So the book features a scene where the father beats the son set with a double-sided razor strap. Yeah, it's in the book. That scene's in the book. And, and draws blood. It's a very powerful scene in the book. Because I want to talk about how we do our children under the pretense of preparing them to keep them alive. And so my grandparents, for example, from Alabama, would talk about, well, I'm beating you so the white man won't kill you. I'm beating you to, to make you obey so that you won't uh, act out when the police stop you, stop you. And so, which I think is a really dangerous thing, because when you teach a child violence, that child is going to start solving problems via violence. So, yes, what's your name, sister? Fanny. Hi, Fanny. Yes. Yes. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> you have to read the book. That's right. right. And that's a great point because in the book, listen, as we know, because we're alive and on the planet, listen, some kids just have that thing. You can have great parents. You can have great teaching. You can have the, go to the best schools. But as we know, some kids or younger people, whoever, that quote-unquote bad apple, they just have that violent streak. And in this story, uh, it's set. Uh, as an aside, so this book is a is a reimagining of the ancient Egyptian story of Asar and Set. The Greeks called uh, Asar Osiris, you may know that name, Osiris. Set is called Set or Seth. So it's that Egyptian ancient pantheon brought to East St. Louis in 1917, or around uh, 1917. So it's the it's Egyptian mythology brought to America in a story. So I've read many books, I'm a professor of English, so I've read many books about, about Greek mythology, which I love actually. But I wanted to write a book based upon Egyptian mythology. So this book is a story of Asar and Set, uh, all those Pantheon members, Keb, Newt, or Nut, and Tilda. Those are all real, not let's just say real, they're all uh, uh, icons from the Egyptian Pantheon that I've hopefully made flesh and blood and made real, to real people. And so Set is the precursor to the devil. Set, uh, in the Bible, if you know the Bible at all, Set... Um, also known as Seta, uh, his color was red. For example, he was called the Great Deceiver, uh, etc. He is clearly the. There's a great book by Elaine Pagos, who's a scholar from Harvard. She has a great book called um, uh, the title is something like "Making of the Devil," which she's a scholar who traces the, the the Bible's devil character to the character of Set. So I use that book as part of the research for this book in terms of writing a novel. So, yes, I'll start with Yes, sir. what's your name? Yes, sir. Great question. So, oddly enough, I have a couple boys from there, right? Uh, just super, super cool cats. But who's from that area? Anyone know? Okay, you know. Well, you know. That is probably the coolest place I have ever been. The people have such great personal style. It's also a great musical place, meaning that that's where Miles Davis is from. There's a really, really powerful uh, music scene there. It's also the blackest city in America. Literally, in terms of numbers of people. It's like 90, literally 99 point something percent black. Imagine that in one city. It's like 48,000 people, I think, right now. It's gone down over the years, but it's 99 percent black. There's like one cat in a closet, a white cat off of Third Street. These are, these are jokes. These are jokes. But, uh, and so I, I was intrigued by this city, but also that city, it has a lot of poverty and, 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 and difficulty. But it used to be a thriving, in 1917, for example, a powerful city. But in 1917, there was a 17, there was a really infamous race riot there called the East St. Louis Race Riot. It was also the name of a song, uh, a jazz song as well. So I wanted to document that race riot because it isn't well known. But who, who, who knows about the race riot? Okay, few of us do, right? Very important riot because it changed the course of America in some ways in that summer of 1917. So July 1st to July 4th, ironically, Independence Day, there was a race riot, and it was, it was caused by a drive-by. So the first documented drive-by was some white men uh, did a drive-by in a black neighborhood and shot some houses up, and the black men organized themselves about an hour later to defend their homes. So when the cops came to investigate an unmarked car, the black people thought it was the same guys coming to do a drive by number two. They opened fire on these two white cops and killed them both. And then that led to the town attacking the black people in a really vicious, horrific way. So I wanted to 
have that be the backdrop of this story. A, it's a great story in terms of what, what happens, but it's also an unknown, largely part of history. So. Yes, what's your name? Hi, Zola. Thank you. Respect. Great question. So the book is really trying to comment on America today. But oftentimes, in my experience, I find that when you talk about America and about race and politics today, people are so defensive for good reason. You know, folks don't want to be labeled racist or be too uh, racially sensitive if you're black or brown. So I thought maybe it would be best to talk about it as an historical novel by going back in time. Because that part of, 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 of the St. Louis area is set 13 miles from Ferguson. And there's a long history in that Ferguson area of racial violence. And part of the point was to say that uh, this region is endemic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, is, a, is, a, is a model for race and violence in America. So although I began the book before Ferguson, I wasn't surprised at all when Ferguson jumped off because that part of the country is really complicated around race. And folks don't really think about Missouri as racist or the South. It is the deep South. Missouri, St. Louis is crazy. It is like a different country. It's like, it's so aggressively racist. I mean, it is like, they are not playing. They are not playing in St. Louis. And so when Ferguson jumped, I was like, here we go again. So the book is really talking about the Ferguson issues, police abuse, violence, black people, skin gradation. So the book, as you may have noticed in one of the readings, the wife is a light-skinned black woman. The husband is a dark-skinned black man. I wanted to also talk about intra-racial politics, how light... How colorism in the, in the black community is a major problem because we still value the dominant group's understanding of beauty. Uh, and so that is a major part of the book. We're trying to explore race. And the, and the, and the main character set, the young boy who, who gets with LIGO, over a period of time, he becomes almost all white. He's essentially a, like a black albino. And so the book begins to ask the question, well, if a person is white, is he still black? What makes someone black? If you have white skin, if, you, if you're white, how can you be black? Well, ask Riff Raff, brother, or ask uh, Adele, you know. Um, and so I, I wanted to interrogate uh, the complicated nature of race in America, but hopefully do it in a story. So the book, although it has, has all these themes, it's just a family story about some family that has a problem that they cannot solve. Uh, there's no a solution, no cure for the like them. And so... That is oftentimes the story of black people in America. There's no cure, really, for racism or how people view the black body. If you're black, you're going to catch hell. That's the rule. You know, I'm a black professor, hyper-educated. You know, listen, I've got so many disturbing stories. I'll tell you one, just to make the point clear. So I'm a professor of English, right? There are a lot of people who are... Um, like me in my, in my guild. So when I go to our conferences around the country or the world at times, very, very few black men, uh, first of all, in English literature, who are fly with locks and fly hats. That ain't happening, right? <laughs> and so anyway, one day I was in our, one day I was in my, I was in, my, in our building, my office is at. I was catching the elevator, uh, the elevator back to my office from class. So I had my backpack with all my, I was grading papers that day, grading papers, and had my backpack, my shoulder pack, rather, shoulder bag. Uh, my, my papers in my hand. I, I get in the elevator, I push the button, the door is open. I, I'm in my building where I teach at. And there was a, a, a white woman about maybe mid-40s there. She sees me, makes eye contact, 
this is a true story, literally goes into the corner of the elevator and clutches her back like this. I'm not exaggerating. I was so stunned, I couldn't even, I couldn't even respond to her. I was like, and so I got on, and I was like, wow, I can't play this lady. And the whole time, she, she was like this. <laughs> As if I was going to, what, mug her, take her purse, push floor number two, don't tell. <laughs> right? And then I got really angry. I almost said, and thank God I didn't say this to her, I almost said, babe, you got nothing I want. You know, but I was able to catch myself. But my, my point is that racism is so irrational. But in that moment, I, I didn't speak to her. I didn't, I didn't address her craziness. And so that week, that month, it troubled me. I should have said something to that lady. For weeks afterwards, I was just troubled. I was beating myself up. Because typically, when you are engaged in that type of situation, you, you should speak, but you don't know what to say. You're embarrassed for her, for them. You're all, you know, that stuff can make you lose your mind. I've seen it happen to several people. It can make it drive you crazy. Those so-called microaggressions are real. Bit by bit, either you respond viciously or violently, or you respond verbally, whatever you do, or you don't respond. Whatever you do, you can't win. It can destroy your mind. Which is why, as we know through stats, that black people have a higher rate of mental illness than other folks, about 20%, because we deal with so much drama around our skin color. And we internalize it and then inflict it on each other. It's so complicated. So the book deals with all of that, hopefully, and just in a good story. Yes, what's your name, sir? Yes. That's a great question. My approach is to work on ourselves. So I'm a meditator. I believe in the power of prayer, meditation, spiritual practice. And we have to undergird ourselves to deal with it. It may change in a thousand years. I don't know. I mean, who knows what can happen. But it's not going to change in 2016. Guaranteed. Guaranteed, right? I mean, with Donald Trump winning the GOP nomination, keep it, let's keep it real. And so in my experience, we have to work on ourselves. I would propose what I do, just meditate pray, do yoga, find creative ways to undergird the self and not allow it to, A, drive you crazy, and B, not allow it to make you angry or bitter or resentful or violent. You know, we have to find a way to be healthy. In my experience, we are, in, in black neighborhoods that I've been at and lived in, we are so unhealthy, so quick to medicate with alcohol, with drugs, with sex, with anything, because we're so, we're hurting so much and we have no effective means to deal with our issues. And not that we can't, not that some of us can or, or can do that or cannot do that, we can. I'm an example of a person, a person who's from that type of neighborhood who has been able to find a way to be healthy, pretty healthy anyway. So it can certainly be done, but we have to take care of ourselves, for sure. Do something, you know. Yes, sir, what's your name? Mm -hmm. I would say James Baldwin, who's a great nonfiction and a pretty good fiction writer. Uh, I would say Toni Morrison's early work, The Bluest Eye and Song of Solomon. I would say Gloria Naylor's early work, uh, Brewster Place and Lyndon Hills. Um, I love the poet Yusef Komanyaka and Mary Baraka, uh, early Langston Hughes. So I like poets who are very, or writers who are very soulful, who can tell a great story, but who can also talk about the human experience. I love William Shakespeare. He's so good at understanding human beings. He does a great job at describing and telling human, uh, human beings 
uh, stories that are complicated. So. I, I've read much of his work. Uh, I've read his memoir. I liked it. Um, I, I've read his new book. I haven't got to it's on my desk to read. I heard it was great, though. People love that book. So uh, I haven't read his work yet, enough, enough to really know. But my friends who read it, they really love him and love that book. So, yes. It does. So the book's kind of, it's not a metaphor, but it's, I was trying to talk about America today, but with some distance, because at times, again, distance allows people to be more open to the issues. You know, if it was a long time ago, they'll be more open to hearing about it. If I was writing about Lamert Park or Santa Monica College, they'd be like, that's not, he's lying. I recall I was at a reading, this is a terrible story, but I was doing a reading, I won't get into all the details of it, but I was, uh, I was asked to come read this place. I was reading my poetry on some real talk, on some real, like, politically aggressive and smart, interesting, truth-telling in this place. And the people kind of wigged out. They were running down the aisle. It was like a room about this size. Running down the aisle saying, you lie. You lie. And I was like, oh, man. So I began to scream my poetry. I'm wrong. It was like a movie. Um, and my point is that when you talk about today's society, people can be super uh, reactionary, you know. So that's, in my experience of, of reading, I'm a poet as well, of reading poems that are political, people aren't always happy. And they meet me, I'm a pretty friendly guy, so I, hey, what's happening? Oh, you, you gotta come out to my, uh, you gotta come to our school, my place and read. Are you sure you want me to come? <laughs> All righty. So I get there, I just break myself out. Pow, they're like, no, you lie. <laughs> So I was like, whoa. So in my experience, uh, I find that it's probably easier for me to write about the past to comment on the future. So cause people always attack me when I tell the truth, you know. <laughs> yes, sir. Because I really am impressed with black people. Like, I love black, I like all people, of course, but I, I love that we've been able to go through so much and still create beauty. So I love soulfulness. I, I love jazz. So I love John Coltrane. I love Miles Davis. I love hip hop. So I love most death. I like soulful artists. I'm into reggae. I love Bob Marley and Durrington Levy and, and Dennis Brown. So my point is I like soulful artists. And I'm so moved by how beautiful black people have been at creating American culture. Because much, much of American culture is just black culture. Rock, if you, if you know, I'm also a rock fan. If you know rock at all, if you know classic rock bands like uh, the Birds and the Rolling Stones and early Beatles, they're all just playing the blues, all of them, right? And so I'm like, I love how we walk and talk and our style, our swagger. I, I'm just drunk on black people. And so I wanted to just, as, but also I love books, not but, but yeah, I love books. So I wanted to meld my love for black people, but also as a really avid fan of literature, I wanted to, you know, do that as well. So, just my interests came together, you know. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Hi, Nicole. I like your, that thing on your head, girl. What is that? You are doing it big, right? You, you went big, girl. That's how you do it. That's right. That's right. Great. Yes. So, yes. Now, it's subtle. You have to read the book, but absolutely. Because I, I believe in solutions. I'm a practical guy. So, absolutely. 
That's right. As the book comes into, I won't give it a spoil, I won't give it away, but yes, when the book comes to its ending, if you're paying attention, you'll be like, oh, oh, here comes the solution right here. He's about to drop, mic drop in the book, right? Bam, there it is. There's the solution. So as the book, yeah, as the book comes to us and you do get a solution. Yeah. But that's a great question. I, I agree because, uh, you know, I'm an avid reader. Too often we're, we're great at complaining. Where are the solutions? I respect that for sure, of course. Yes, sir, what's your name? Yes. So I, I was adopted and raised by a single woman. So I didn't have a father, either biological or adopted. And so like many kids who were adopted and were raised by single women, I, I was, uh, I, and am today, uh, I'm enthralled by the idea of having a father. So all my works deal with father, in some ways, father-son relationships. So that character is a, is a combination of a compendium of different people I've known. Fathers who mean well, who are concerned about their kids, but who, who don't have the training or the skill set to raise kids in such a complicated world where being, where being in a black body will get you killed for, for, for drinking Snapple, for eating, for eating, for eating uh, uh, Skittles. I mean, think about that. I, I've been stopped so many times by the police guys. I, I can't even, I can't even, one t true story, in high school, I got stopped three times going to the mall within one mile. That's a true story. I'm talking about on the curb, using the N-word to me as a kid. I've had, I've, had, I've had a gun pulled on me by the cops at age 10. That's a true story. I like like this. Like this close to me. Straight up, you know. So I've had some crazy experiences, right? It's a, it's a miracle that I'm not, I'm not crazy. I mean, really. Cause I, I should be crazy. I should be, I should be on top of this table right here uh, playing uh, uh, self-dominoes right now by myself. <laughs> Tension right now because I should be crazy. But uh, this goes back to the point about what do we do if we can't solve these issues by next year, by this year? We have got to aggressively pursue self-help, self-edification. Self, uh, you know, too often we do a great job at trying to, to work on the outer exterior, having the flyest ride, having the flyest gear, having the flyest shoes, having the flyest hat, having the flyest girl, having the flyest dude. We do not do enough aggressive work in building the internal infrastructure. For me, as a pragmatic guy, I, I saw, you know what, I, I could be crazy. I'm going to work on myself. Believe that. You know? Yes, sir. All of it. Spirituality, trying to be about love, uh, my diet. So when I was, uh, I was raised by a southern woman, Alabama, a great cook. So I was raised, for example, on the best possible my mama can burn. And put it out there. Amazing cook. And being from the South in Alabama, you know, we were raised on black soul food, which is great, you know, great tasting. So I was raised on all of it. Fried pork chops, fried chicken, fried bacon. It was all fried. And so when I got to college, I did some research on black health issues. And I found out, A, that black people on average die 10 years younger, earlier than our white counterparts. I was like, whoa. Okay. And much of it, they say, is tied to our diets. And I said to myself, I said, self, we have survived the ghetto, insane crips, a pig is not going to kill me. <laughs> and so overnight, I, I called my mom. I said, mama, 
right now, like just now, immediately, I am now a vegetarian. So when I come home, don't give me any bacon, no pork chop, nothing. I'm, you know, and she said, oh, I don't believe you, boy. You, you love my food, which is true. And so uh, I came back to visit that, that, that first break. I think it was Christmas. And as many parents will do, you know, she wanted to take me around to her, her, uh, her friends and show me off because I, I went to Berkeley as an undergraduate. And she was very proud of that. So I would go to uh, her, her, her and her friend's house. And in the South, eating is a social compact. You go to someone's house, they bring out food right away. So I went to her friend's house. And uh, so we got we get the, oh, my baby's home from Berkeley. He's a little young scholar, you know. It's like, oh. And she went to the kitchen and brought back a big old bat of chicken. And I was like, oh, no, thank you, ma'am. And I'm so, no, thank you. She's like, uh, are you too good for my chicken? I was like, no, 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 no. You know? And so mom was trying to be cool. We left that place, went somewhere else, same thing. We get, oh, my baby's home from, from Berkeley. Uh, oh, look. She went in the back, brought some chicken. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And mom was like, we get to the car. Mom was like, eat the damn chicken, boy. <laughs> and I said to her, I said, mama, I said, mama, now um, I am eating to live, not living to eat. And, but, but to keep it real, that really affected our relationship. I mean, really, it was for a number of years. She was pretty upset at me. So it's complicated being healthy, trust me. I think it's our time. It'll be good on time, but I don't want to go too long. It'll be good. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Yes. Exactly. Because the book explores race and violence in America, all right? And so, literally, this boy, who's a dark-skinned black boy, eventually becomes white, at least in terms of his phenotype. And that was a great, natural way to talk about race. So when you're black, as you know, if you live in America, because black culture is American culture, because of hip-hop's permanence and effectiveness at, at portraying a certain type of a black underclass experience, now white people or non-black people, for example, have the right the freedom to say nigga. You know, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've been alarmed. I used to try to like confront dudes, you know, when, when I were here. But now it's so pervasive, I, I play basketball. So I was, uh, I was in the court playing ball. This guy walked up. Hey, you want, you want to play one one one? I was like, yeah, my, my, game's, my game's pretty tight. So I was like, I'll put it on you real quick. So uh, we were playing one on one, and I was just using this cat. And he was like, damn, nigga, you good? I said, what? I said, hey, man, you don't know me like that. You know? And uh, so I began to try to confront dudes when they would use the word the N-word around me, but it was so, I couldn't do it. It was too much of it. Too many niggas around. It was like, nigga, 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 nigga. I was like, oh, my God. It's so pervasive. The point is that that part of American culture, people, it's amazing. So I wanted to talk about all those issues in the novel, to talk about how race operates and how, in many ways, black culture really is uh, American culture. That's simply one expression of how it, in a negative way, at least for me, it manifests itself. Are we good on time? I don't want to, I feel like I'm going too long right now. Okay, okay cool. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? You know, I'm undecided. I mean, to, to be totally honest here. So I grew up using the N-word all the time. And still do, but only among a select, my own friends from my own neighborhood. Anyone else, I don't use it at all. But people who are from my neighborhood, when we see each other, that's how we talk. I'm a little embarrassed to say on, on in the media. But that's how we talk to each other, even still. Although I'm a professor of English, hyper-educated, in that small population, I still use that N-word, but nowhere else. But I still feel uncomfortable when other people use it around me, for sure. 
So my point, I'm not really, I'm conflicted, you know. I don't have all the answers, as you can see. You know, I'm still trying to work my thing out as well. But I think basically the word has been co-opted, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm not sure. I have no answer, but I just have contradiction in my life on that word. Keep it real right now. Yes, sir. What's your name? Yes. Yes, I have. Whoa. Powerful. I had an idea about that. I was kind of wondering what uh, your take on it was. Um, I know, like, a, historically, uh, stereotypes are supposed to respond to people like in uh, early Hollywood. Stuff. Mm-hmm. They kind of view us as, like, animals. Or, That's like, right. That's right. A lot of that is very important in the day. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, because listen, because black men are the icons of masculinity, of strength, kind of sexual prowess, and and not of course all white men this way, obviously. But when you're trying to show your toughness, if you can dominate or make a strong black man feel afraid, you can feel good about yourself. If you're a police officer, you have you have you as an individual in the state behind you, you can go knock some black heads on, on the East Coast. Who, who, who's from East Coast? You want back East? Yo, in the East Coast, like in Philly and New York, it is well known that that white ethnics like Italians, Irish, will join the force just to go beat some black people up. Uh, that's real talk. Who, who's back East? You guys know that. If you're back East, you know, right? And so I'm not saying that's all cops. Uh, being a cop is a hard job. I respect the police. It's a very, very difficult job. But some cats should not be on the police force. If you join the police to go beat up black people, that's the wrong motivation. How about protect and serve black people, right? And so, but however, in my experience, whoa, I've had so many bad interactions. Although I'm an articulate, friendly guy, I've had some like, whoa, straight up, not good things happen. And when I've when I resisted, it's not, been, it's not going well for me. I'll leave it at that, you know. I mean, I can't win when they got a gun. And I just got my hat, you know. That's a losing proposition, you know. Yes, sir, in the back again. Caesar? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's a great question. You want to tell your stories. Like, I've told really just my stories in my neighborhood. I've turned them into a to fiction and I've changed all the details, of course. But these are just neighborhood stories, guys, made into a novel. Or, 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 or American issues in terms of themes and ideas made into a novel. So, so these are my interests as a novel. And hopefully I've made the book into just a good story. So the, the, book is, the book is actually a very good, kind of a page-turning like story, which is good. So job one is decide what you have an interest in and then go tell that story. And just write that down first. And then go back and decide, well, how do I want to tell and frame this story? In fiction and nonfiction, through poetry. But job one is to determine what you want to talk about, like what makes you excited. For me, because I like black people and black culture, I want to write about black people and black culture, but also because I'm a political guy, I live in America, I want to write about politics and race and culture. So this book is all about all those things. So job one is 
find your passion and then treat that like a job. I, I write every single day. It's in my schedule. I, I get up early in the morning to write. I write at night. It's, it's a, this is my job. I, I take it super duper seriously. Hardcore, like a, I'm, a, I'm a maniacal about it. Because for me, uh, this story is important. So here we are today in this reading. Uh, this is my, I guess my last point here. Here we are in this reading, in this book, and I've taken my ideas of being at home in my office and written this book, and now I'm telling you, I'm sharing with you my experience. And so for me, it gives me a chance to talk about race, politics, art, Barrington Levy, Bob Marley, being up in the elevator with crazy white people, all this stuff, because those are not unique just to me. These are American issues. So follow your passion and be hardcore. Get on your grind, is what I'm saying. Oh, we're done. We're done, clearly. Uh, there's a poignant moment in Raising Fences, which I want to share with you, one of many poignant moments. <clears throat> the young boy, it's uh, Michael as a young boy. Mama, Nita said I didn't come from your tummy. Without missing a beat, she drew me close between her legs. Nita is right. You didn't come from my stomach. I made Elgin and Cindy in my stomach, but you were made in my heart. And I thought that was a wonderfully eloquent way to describe what exactly an artist does. And so thank you, Michael Datcher, for telling us your story from your heart. It has been quite stimulating and inspirational. And on behalf of the college... Here's a token of our appreciation. Oh, thanks. Thank you. And thank you. thank you. And thank you for coming. Thanks to all of you again for coming to listen to these wonderful stories. See you later.